Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to Kudzu Vine for February 20th, 2022. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Join me as always. Welcome, Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome, Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right. Uh, back. Good to be back at our regular time after our a Super Bowl hiatus. Um, hope everybody enjoyed a good Super Bowl Sunday. I know our guest did. He um, is a big fan of the NFL, and, and when I told him, you know, our, how we don't go live, he, he thought that was very astute. But um, come, well, coming on the show for at least the third time from the University of Wisconsin Lacrosse is going to be uh, political science professor Dr. Anthony Trugoski. And so Anthony's going to be joining us talking about all kinds of Wisconsin politics, maybe touch on a few more things, but we're going to really focus in on the Badger State since it is a probably one of the easily five most intriguing political states in 2022. Uh, but until then, we've got plenty to talk about. Um, you, you take two weeks off, and that kind of happens, um, or nearly two weeks. I think we pre-recorded a show like on Tuesday, the week of the Super Bowl. But um, something that's been going on a while, that the more you see the polling, the focus groups, everything, is if you had to guess the one big issue that is going to impact the 2022 midterms, it's going to be inflation. Um, I would argue that this is far more of an economic-controlled issue than a politically-controlled one, but nevertheless – if people are paying more for stuff, particularly stuff than they'd want to pay for and stuff they need, um, it impacts their lives in a big way. And so um, it's going to be an issue, no doubt, um, unless something drastically changes um, in the you know nature of prices. And if it does, it probably still would impact things because it'd be like, wow, a miracle work. Um, Catherine, just kind of give us your thoughts on what people you're seeing at the stores, what you're hearing about how inflation's just impacting people's lives. Well, it's really pretty amazing when you when you look at the increase in food prices and gas prices and even, you know, housing and um, you know, pretty much at, across the board there are um price increases and um also availability. I was uh, I mean this is a little thing, but I was at the grocery store the other day I wanted to make some chili and I usually use ground turkey for my chili and there was no ground turkey anywhere in the Kroger I was in none which is I mean I don't remember a time when that happened and and then there's other uh, there's other like strange items that seem to be not available there was something else that oh I couldn't find any saltine crackers it's just strange and I think you know a lot of this is related to the pandemic and um, shipping, sh- shipping delays and uh, supply chain. But, and, and so I think that if those things 
shore up between now and, you know, August, September, that we might not feel that so badly at the at the voting booth. Because, um, you know, typically when we have these kind of um, this inflation and other kinds of economic woes, they're blamed on who's ever in charge. So uh, it could hurt the Democrats. Um, but if we see some improvement, hopefully that would help our Democrats. So I think a lot of it, like I said, I think a lot of it is related to uh, COVID and a lot of recovery is going to be related to how we come out of this and how quickly. Yeah, Tim, um, your kind of just you know thoughts on the actual how it affects people because, I mean, I think a lot of times we think of everything in political issues, but if you're paying significantly more for baby formula or home heating or, or something that you have to have, that's really a personal issue far more than a political one. Sure it is. Prices are up 7.5% over last year at this time, and that's the fastest uh, rate growth since Ronald Reagan was in his first term as president. And, uh, you know, when it's things like food and gas, things that touch everybody, that, you know, that angers voters. And that that's that's what we're, we're seeing here. We're seeing a lot of surly people. Catherine's right. They're going to they're going to blame it on the guy at the top. Um, we'll, we'll get in more of the history of it and what to do about it in a, in a moment, but it is touching everybody. It touches me. I'm a retired person on a fixed income. It's tough to go to the grocery store every week and know that you're paying $50 more a week for the same stuff that you bought a year ago. Uh, it's tough to go... Uh, especially when I'm working in a political campaign. I have to be uh, driving all over northwest Georgia right now, and I have to pay $3.39 for a gallon of gas. It's, it, it, it's tough, and, and people are feeling it, and people are not happy about it. And that's, that's just where we are. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing. I feel for people, I'm, I'm kind of lucky in that I'm just not a spender. I mean, I, I, I'm a saver, not a spender, and well, you know, and so I, it ain't I, I have to buy gas, but I have a pretty fuel. Yeah, you got to buy groceries um, too. That's everybody. Yeah, well, my wife does most of the grocery buying, although that's my household income. Well, it still but you know, comes it, out of the same pot. Yeah, <laughs> you know. exactly. I, that's what I'm saying. I'm just t- telling you that, and I'm the kind of person as far as supply chain. Like when I go buy cereal. I just buy whatever's the cheapest on sale because I may have 20 different ones I can deal with, and and I'm just one of those people I, I just make do. And but I feel for other people because I know a lot of other pe- people have to have certain things. I mean, I I think people that are you know parents of young children and you have to have baby formula, you have to have di- diapers. A lot of those items are very fixed, um, and and so the prices going up are, are a big issue. Now, um, I guess we're going to have uh, later on. He, he talked about how uh, on you know some different videos I've watched, and we'll get into it. But he talked about how you know, of course, you know, wages have increased for people, which is a good thing. But of course, the high cost of prices is eating up a lot of that wage increase. But that's 
probably a lot of the reason, you know, for the inflation is at every step of the supply chain, wages have increased. Um, so that's kind of a, um, you know, the increases happen quickly, and then the um, inflation followed later. But now what's going to be tricky about that is apparently a lot of people that were older that were some, maybe some of the younger baby boomers just left the workforce earlier, and that's what created a lot of these jobs. And it's not like they're going to go back to working. It's not like, you know, cool, like, oh, these lazy people sitting around. It's not like a bunch of people are just going to enter back into jobs immediately because they may just have found a way to retire a little earlier. And so wages may stay high for a while. So I kind of wonder if the inflation actually will go down um, very quickly, even when the supply chain gets a bit better. Um, we, we may get stuff on the shelves, but the prices may stay higher because of you know the, the um, work situation. Tim, what do you think? How to fix it? Oh boy. Well, I, I think we need a little bit of luck. We'd need for the pandemic to subside. Catherine is certainly right about that, so that we can totally open everything up and get as close back to normal as we can. Then the hope is that this will cure the turmoil in the global supply chain. That'll help some. We need also for the situation that we're going to talk about in a few minutes with Russia to to ease up too. They are like the number three oil producer in the world. Something happens over there, gas prices ain't going anywhere. I want you to remember something, guys. Inflation helped to ruin Jimmy Carter and the Democrats from the late 70s, uh, basically until Clinton came on the scene in the 90s for a period of 15 years, it can kill you. And inflation in the short term could be crushed. We have a historical precedent. Reagan did it in 1983. But the moves he made set off a recession, and Biden simply cannot risk something like that in an election year. Um so I, I don't see what, what what really could could be done, but Biden's the guy at the top. His approval rating's down to 41% on basically on account mostly of what's going on with inflation. And I just think we're going to need a, a little bit of luck as the year unfolds for, for anything much to happen with it. Otherwise, I think we're going to pay a steep price at the polls. Yeah, Catherine, um, you know, if, if COVID does – Subside, and I think I mean you, following last year's pattern, um, when the weather, you know, people kind of get out of flu season, um, COVID season may subside naturally. Now, last time we had, you know, people getting vaccines, and that helped immensely. And we're kind of down to the point where I just don't know what's going to get people on board that aren't on board at this point with vaccines. But we're going to get at least the vaccinated people. Um, you know, can then move back into spring and summer. And that, that, I think, will naturally help. But then, of course, we know that gas prices typically get higher in the summer. And so even if they go down um, in other terms, they might actually not go down to the pump. Best case scenario, they stay the same. Um, and, and so that's going to linger through the summer. Uh, and people look at gas prices, which, of course, how much does any president other than an oil man, I know it affected George W. Bush significantly, but other presidents that really didn't have as much of an impact 
because Paul didn't see them as having control over it, but now Paul are just unhappy, so it might. So my question is, how are people going to react to, in particular, gas prices um, if they stay roughly the same through, say, Labor Day? Well, this is kind of a double-edged sword um, because if if we do see a you know real uh, improvement in COVID numbers, and which may in turn bring people back into into the office, then they're going to be driving more, so they're going to be more sensitive to um, gas prices. And uh, our demand and, and demand may go up, so it's it's uh, it's troubling, and it's hard to it's hard to imagine what the solution to that is. Like, how do we? I mean, bar way of improving public transportation quickly, which isn't going to happen. Um, I, I don't know what the answer to that is. Obviously, Tim made, makes a good point that the situation with Russia and the Ukraine um, has an impact on it because of um, of oil availability. So I, I think we're, I think Tim's absolutely right. We need some luck. We need some uh, improvement in our COVID numbers, some uh, sort of overreaching uh, remote work uh, changes um, and acceptance. Um, so that the people that are working remotely now and being productive can continue to do that. So there isn't the, as much of an increase in demand for um, fuel. And, and of course, uh, the spring coming and the less demand for um, heat and, and those expenses. So it's sort of a um, convergence of all kinds of things. And, I think Tim's right. We need some luck and uh, some improvement in those COVID numbers. I think that is going to make a difference. Hmm. Yeah. Well, the COVID, I think, like I said, I think that will get better. Um, you know, mm-hmm. in, in the coming months, and probably stay better. Well, that's through. what we thought. That's what we thought a year ago. I mean, I. I well, but but a I lot think of you're that, right. A but lot of that it, was. It, it really did get better for people that got vaccinated. The, yes. the the big wave that, yeah, that happened, a Delta, was very much a another f- spike in the pandemic of the unvaccinated. Um, You're you right, know, and, and so that made it a little different. Now, uh, as far as um, you know, I think as far as politically, you know, Joe Biden's going to talk a lot about inflation, focus on inflation. He's going to have mm-hmm. to, other than you know, figuring out the Supreme Court pick and dealing with the foreign policy issues, and we'll get to that later, it's going to have to be a lot of focus on yeah. um, inflation. Because, like, you know, he, they did do some things yeah. at the Long Beach um, uh, Shipping Container Center where they went to make it 24 hours a day. They added more shifts. That They moved it along. And really, the expected Christmas, um, you know, Christmas gifts not showing up, that kind of, you know, didn't materialize because of what the moves were made in Long Beach. But now if you're – unless you're seeking that information out, like I think Vox had a good article about it, you know, several months ago, you just don't know. And so they're going to have to let people know, and the focus is going to have to be there, and they're probably going to have to set some things aside 
particularly things that just aren't going to get done anyway, and spending a lot of bandwidth on them is going to be counterproductive politically. Tim? Mm-hmm. Well, what Biden has to do politically is he needs at least to convince voters that he's trying to do something. Mm-hmm. The problem is how to own the issue without being punished for its effects. And that's where a guy with Joe Biden's resume might could help because there is no problem, inflation or otherwise, that he has not dealt with in all of his long years in Washington, D.C. I know that Democrats have made one very popular proposal, the uh, Senate Democrats, and that's the suspension of the federal gas tax. I think it's like 18 points. Four cents a gallon or something like that It would not produce much But it might show the public That the Democrats are trying Something Franklin Roosevelt Used to say try something Try try anything Mm. if that Doesn't work try something else But for God's sake try Something and so that's What people right now really Need to see they need to See Joe Biden Trying uh, To address what to them is, is the issue that is hitting them in the worst possible place, and that's their pocketbooks. And if you hit voters in the pocketbook, their attention is going to be there. So he just, like you said, David, he, he, he needs to disengage from some things that that we we can't do anything about and, and – uh, and in, engage in, in this thing, and he needs to get going on it right now. Yeah, and I've heard about the, you know, the gas tax, and um, I think a lot of the alternative fuel technologies are going to catch up anyway. I mean, if we watched the Super Bowl, all we saw was electric car commercials, so that's coming anyway. So in the short term, if to save a lot of other priorities, we, we just you know cut the gas tax, which here's what I think will happen is, you cut it, let's say it cuts 18 cents off a gallon of gas, but then the natural raise in summer prices might take it away, so it might not be as well positive um, it, a result as people need. But at the end of the day, it is trying something. It's showing you care. It's showing you understand. Another thing you ought right. to do is have a meeting between him, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Kevin McCarthy, Mitch McConnell. Say, look, we need to have the bipartisan leaders. I'm going to invite you to the White House. We're going to t- work on this. You can have a photo op- picture going in, a picture going out. But in the meantime, there's no cameras. We're going to talk. We're going to work. We're going to try a couple of solutions. And then, of course, if, if Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy try to do political stunts and they don't want to try to talk about solutions, then they're going to hammer the Republicans on that. Either you're going to come to the table and try to talk about solving things, and if they solve things, good for the American people, good for everybody. Um, if they don't try to solve things well, and they try to you know, politically grandstand to try to win points, yeah. this, which I think there are some Republicans that want to using this issue, um, then you've got to sell that story to the American people. Catherine? Yeah, I just I – just, I think the days are over of you know, really working with re- Republicans. I just think – I just think they're, you know, so stuck in their um, anti-democratic or anti-democratic party uh, stance that they're they're not going to be willing 
But well, I could be wrong. I think some are, but at the end of the day, we're going to have the parties. I mean, the Republicans likely are going to control something coming out of the election. So if you can't figure out any paths to any kind of bipartisanship, then you're going to have more complete gridlock, and you at least have to be the one that shows you're willing, you're trying. And that's the place I think you want to be politically. But let's go ahead and um, switch gears. We're going to go from national to just one state, and so we're going to bring in our guest for about the third time on the show. Welcome, Dr. Anthony Chagoski. Hey, great to be with you all again. Thanks for having me. Oh, glad to have you. Um, well, Anthony, you know, we talked to you a time or two before, I think at least one time prior to this election. We talked to you a lot of these elections, and we will again today because we know more moves have been made. But since we had you on, I listened to a book by one of your colleagues, another professor from up in Wisconsin, um, and she wrote a book called The Politics of Resentment. It was actually written kind of before the Trump era, certainly before the Biden era. But it's some of the lessons just rang so true in the politics that we're, um, we're moving towards and just kind of give folks a synopsis. She just goes a lot around rural areas in particular, some cities in Wisconsin, and just does a lot of, I guess, informal focus groups and sees how the voters feel really about other Wisconsin, Wisconsinites. And it's really eye-opening. I know you've probably poured through the book. Um, what do you think about that book, Range True? I, I think a lot of it. Uh, Kathy Kramer, a colleague of mine at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, uh, is, is really made a splash uh, with this book, The Politics of Resentment, because it does go a long way in, represent, in explaining the Donald Trump phenomena. And certainly I'm here in a, in a city called The Cross, which is more of a rural area. And so I can definitely see the kinds of trends that are described by, by Kathy Kramer and that are described in the book and, and that have been described elsewhere. And, and so I think some of the key things that we have observed about rural politics in Wisconsin, but really rural politics everywhere, is this sense of resentment, this sense that there is a cultural and political and an economic divide between urban and rural areas. And in Wisconsin, a few forms, it, it takes a form of a perception of power, like people, this, per, this perception among rural people that in Madison, where the state government is, it's these distant government officials that are calling the shots and don't really care about the people back in the small towns and don't really give the people in the small towns a lot of say over what happens. Then perceptions of values and lifestyles, that's nothing new in the United States, that these culture wars. But I do think the culture wars have taken on they really now do overlap cleanly with the urban-rural divide, where the folks in rural areas think that, you know, their lifestyle, their values are a certain way, and that the people in these urban areas are living these really foreign and unusual and just unfamiliar lifestyles and living out these values that make them uncomfortable. And then perceptions of resources, I think, is a big one. 
it, it suggests to me that this isn't really based in traditional conservatism, a lot of the urban-rural divide, because a lot of the rural resentment seems to be based in this idea that the resources of government are going to urban areas and are not going to rural areas. That is to say that rural folks are, are thinking that they're not getting their fair share of resources compared to what urban folks are getting. So, I mean, it's not really about limited government per se. It's more about, you know, are we getting our due? Are, are we getting our fair share of, of, of the pie? And, and mixed into all of this is the population decline in rural areas, both here in Wisconsin and elsewhere, the difficulty in getting young people to stay in rural areas, the difficulty in attracting businesses and jobs to rural areas. I was talking to a reporter from one of the newspapers here in Wisconsin on Friday, and I said that the urban-rural divide is the defining feature of Wisconsin politics. And it's certainly not uh, certainly a major factor in other states as well. But, um, but you know, certainly it's going to uh, – certainly it really does define life here to, to a great extent. Uh, I always say that, you know, if you're in Madison or Milwaukee, it's like you, you might as well be in a different universe than if you're in a small town. And, and you know, living in this – having lived in the south, I've seen that play out down there. Uh, and so I think not only in Wisconsin is the urban-rural divide the defining feature of America, of politics, but you, you can make a strong case that the urban-rural divide really does define politics all over America nowadays. Yeah, I, I, when I listened to the book, I noticed how um, a lot of the – there was a lot of conversation about uh, public schools, like uh, the, the the rural voters wanted more public school spending, and that's more of a, a you know pro government um, stance, and so that that kind of belied some of the the rhetoric we hear now. Now, um, just to kind of let our listeners know, I, I remember at times listening, it sounded like some of the voters in rural uh, northern Wisconsin. Um, they kind of considered anything north of Metro Milwaukee, which I guess is further north than Madison, um, that that was, you know, south of that line was one area and north of that line. Now, and others, they picked this highway, and I remember looking it up, and I guess it was around Green Bay um, yeah. and probably La Crosse, for that matter. North of that was the, the dividing line. The, they had a name for it that was very close to the Mason-Dixon line. So kind of tell us, where do you think the dividing line is? Well, you know, People will give you different answers to to that question. Um, it, it is kind of like uh, you know, there, there's like Highway 10 that goes around across Wisconsin. Uh, it, it is kind of like if you go to Green Bay, which is uh, you know, if you're kind of looking at Wisconsin, it's about two thirds of the way up from the Illinois border, and, and you draw a line that runs. <coughs> Uh, horizontally through Green Bay and and the state, you know that might be considered northern Wisconsin, and that I, like I mean the the real interesting thing is that you know where people live in geographically in the state is really baked into their identity to a great extent. 
And I think that's why your point about public schools is a really important one, because, you know, I've always been skeptical that the rural-urban divide is a conservative-liberal divide, or, or at least that it's that simple. I think, it's re- I think it really has a lot to do with people's sense of identity. And I see that in Wisconsin, where, where I live. I see it when I travel around the state, that people in urban areas, you know, don't identify with rural Wisconsin. And people in rural Wisconsin think that, you know, urban Wisconsin is, is a distant, far-off, mysterious and weird place. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that there are, and, and, and what we have seen is a sharp shift of northern Wisconsin to the right. Yeah, like, I think, but I think it's a very smart point, though, that it's, it's not about, you know, it's, it's not a movement for, like, limited government and fiscal conservative, really. It's more of a culture war, and it's more about people feeling like their sense of rural identity is threatened by the decline of rural areas and the sense that, you know, if their area is declining, if if rural Wisconsin is declining, then it must be because the state lawmakers don't care. It must be because they're not getting their fair share of government resources. It must be because the urban areas are, you know, getting most of the attention. So that's what this is really about. And, and that's why this is so difficult to deal with from a policy perspective. Governor Tony Evers, the Democratic governor of Wisconsin, had his State of the State address this week, and he went out of his way to talk about some of the things that he was doing for rural areas. Certainly rural broadband has been a major topic of discussion here in Wisconsin. There's been quite a bit of spending on a bipartisan basis that has gone toward rural broadband. Another example was Governor Evers providing uh, funding through federal money for emergency services in rural areas, which is a huge problem to get emergency services like ambulances uh, available in rural areas. But, you know, the, 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 Spending is not the whole story here. When, you know, just the Democrats can't really solve this in terms of winning back rural areas. It's not as easy as just funneling government money and funneling spending on broadband and emergency services and stuff like that. It's not quite that simple when so much of this is tangled up in identity politics and culture war politics as well. Yeah, well, that's a, that kind of great segue to the next question. At times when uh, Dr. Kramer would describe how the people in the rural northern parts of Wisconsin thought about Milwaukee and Madison, I could tell a distinction. They weren't lumped together. It was Milwaukee was more of a metropolitan city with a lot of people of color that in some ways, I don't think the people seem to resent as much. They just didn't feel as connected to the people. But then when they talked about Madison, it was like the weird white people, the, the, the weird progressives <laughs> that we just don't understand. And there seemed to be more disdain among those voters talking about people of Madison. 
do you kind of get the sense that, that um, Wisconsinites don't group those voters – I'm sorry, not voters – those citizenries together? I, I definitely do um, because when you – Wisconsin is quite unique in its political geography because, you know, like, where I come from in, in – uh, you know, I grew up in Minnesota, and there – you know, the, the Twin Cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul are kind of lumped together, and the urban-rural divide basically is, you know, sort of a, a diverse, liberal Minneapolis and St. Paul area versus a, a very white and kind of conservative rural Minnesota. But it's not that simple in Wisconsin because you have sort of this rapidly growing area in Madison, which is part of the story here, that Madison – is growing rapidly while rural Wisconsin is shrinking. So that's a, an important part of the story. It has UW-Madison, uh, the flagship public university here with – and, you know, I was talking to one guy uh, recently to just kind of get his perceptions of UW-Madison, sort of a culturally conservative guy, and he called Madison the Berkeley of the Midwest. Uh, so that's the kind of thinking that – a lot of people in Wisconsin have about Madison, but Milwaukee, it, it, it is a very racially diverse area. It, it is a very democratic and, and liberal area, but, but very different economically and, and demographically than, than Madison is. So when, so I guess I would say that Republicans like Scott Walker have really done a, an effective job of, talking to rural areas about how Milwaukee and Madison are different, that Milwaukee and Madison don't have your values, that Milwaukee and Madison are getting too much attention from the government and you in rural Wisconsin are being left behind. But it, Milwaukee and Madison are not the same. And so I think a lot of people do want to boil rural resentment down to just straight-up racism. And I don't deny for one second that race is an element of this. I mean, when you hear politicians and people talk about Milwaukee, the issue of race is usually not that far from the surface. But it's a very different story in Madison. So, you know, rural resentment is this really complicated thing where you know, yeah, race is for sure mixed in, but also distribution of resources and economics and culture and just the sense of, you know, which which areas of the state are getting ahead and which are being left behind. Yeah, and that's why I think came through with the discussion of Madison. It wasn't just racism. It was just a disconnect and how they view people from uh, Madison. Well, final question on this vein, and then I'm going to turn it over to Catherine and Tim to get into some real 2022 politics and um, candidates and whatnot. And that would be just so we kind of know, and this is kind of after the 2020 census, what you can tell us, what percentage of the population of Wisconsin is in Metro Milwaukee? the greater Madison area, any other places that kind of are significant? And then how much is this rural great northern area actually constitute of Wisconsin's population? You know, it's funny. This great northern area, it 
constitutes an enormous amount of geography, but not that many people. I mean, you can basically put all of them into one, one and a half congressional districts out of the eight districts that we have. So it, they command a disproportionate amount of attention uh, relative to their amount of people. And, and, and you know, with, and like I said, I mean, I, I think it, I think a critical part of this story is the idea that there are exciting things happening in Milwaukee and Madison and that rural Wisconsin is just sort of being drained of people, being drained of businesses. And, and frankly, like all of that is true. Um, rural Wisconsin, like many rural areas around the country, is really suffering economically. It's declining in population. It's failing to keep its young people there. It's failing to attract new residents. Meanwhile, in places like Milwaukee, I mean, you have the Milwaukee Bucks winning the NBA championship, and you have Madison that is booming economically and is a rapidly growing area for young professionals and young families. So all of that is part of the story here. And so, you know, I, I think that this is only going to exacerbate the conflict between rural and urban here in Wisconsin and elsewhere. You know, as rural areas continue to experience economic struggles, as they continue to, you know, shrink demographically, as they continue to, uh, you know, just suffer in, in many different ways, and as, you know, you, you have kind of this growth and, and development elsewhere, it's only going to increase the level of, of rural resentment that we see here in Wisconsin and elsewhere. So, you know, it's funny, this study that we're talking about of, of rural Wisconsinites took place, you know, 10, 8, 6 years ago, but I, I would imagine that not only would you find the same things, the same attitudes if you redid the study today, but if, if anything, I think the sense of rural identity and and rural resent and resentment towards uh, urban areas. I would expect that, if anything, it just would have become more intense uh, by the time, you know, by today. Uh, no doubt uh, triggered by sort of Donald Trump's rhetoric and and Donald Trump's appeals to rural America in ways that really resonated with the people there. Yes. Okay. Before I incur any more urban and rural resentment from Catherine and Tim, I'm going to pass it along since I've monopolized your time talking about that wonderful book. Uh, Catherine? Good evening. Thanks so much for being with us tonight. It's nice to hear, it's nice to hear from you again. Oh, thank um, you so much. I just want to, I want to make one correction that everyone knows that Ann Arbor is the Berkeley of the of the East. So, want to make sure we all understand that it is my hometown after all. Anyway, um, I want I, I have one question related to what David was talking to you about. There's the you talk about this, um, you know, feeling that rural Wisconsinites have about uh, you know disproportionate. Uh, amount of resources going to urban and I guess probably suburban um, areas. Is there any uh, reality to that? 
Like when we look at the budget, is it true that 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 it's happening, or is it is it really just a perception? That that is a fantastic question, and it is a perception. So when you break down the budget and you look at the resources that flow into urban Wisconsin, suburban Wisconsin, and rural Wisconsin, it's not the case at all that rural Wisconsin is getting shafted in terms of its resources. So this is definitely a perception. And, you know, there have been some high-profile examples that I think have driven this perception, uh, one of which is a rather famous one. It came early in Scott Walker's administration after he was elected governor of Wisconsin in 2010. There was money for a Madison to Milwaukee speed rail line, and he famously nixed uh, that project. Uh, You know, it it would not have been something that the state really had to pick up uh, a lot of the funding for. You know, it it was more of like a federal thing. But Walker kind of says no to it. And and I think things like that drive the perception. It's like, well, you know, the elites in Madison just want want their fancy train between Madison and Milwaukee. So it, it is very much a perception as, as opposed to a reality when you look at the line items in the, in the budget. Uh, but, you know, this perception has really sunk in for years and years and years among the people in rural Wisconsin. I mean, just uh, what, what a fantastic example of that old cliche, that perception is reality. It, it certainly is in this case. Yeah, well, I think I think we have the same perception. I think that's a perception that um, occurs around the country. I mean, I don't think it's uh, exclusive to Wisconsin. I think we get the same, uh, some of that same kind of tone here in Georgia. Um, we're always hearing about, you know, rural um, and people outside of Atlanta talking about how Atlanta runs everything, they get all the money. And, and when you look at it, it's not true. <laughs> um and and in addition, it. I mean, I think the other part of this, uh, the other thing that this does is it further divides people who really have more in common than they than they realize. That you know, the poor people in urban areas have a lot more in common with the poor people in rural areas than they have with rich people in either area, right? But yeah, yeah, a good way to it's a great yeah, way yeah. to divide. That's a really interesting point because it, it, it has not always been the case that Democrats struggled so mightily in rural Wisconsin. And, of course, we can say the same thing for rural Georgia. We can say the same thing for rural any number of states. But, you know, they, they, they kind of used this sort of economic populism to win over rural areas. Uh, sort of, you know, we're, we're fighting the good fight against the elites kind of rhetoric. Uh, you know, we're fighting for the common person type of rhetoric. Uh, and, and so I think ultimately Democrats, both here and, and in, 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 uh, in other places, uh, we're, we're not really prepared for sort of the culture wars to enter the picture here and to become so overlapped with the urban-rural divide. You know, I, I think the Democrats, certainly here in Wisconsin, you know, talking to people uh, who work in rural Wisconsin, uh, 
Um, you know, the Democrats don't really understand how to deal with sort of the grievance and resentment politics in rural Wisconsin. I mean, they, of course, are trying to push broadband and agriculture programs and uh, more resources for things that rural areas are lacking, like like emergency services. Uh, but cultural politics are so powerful and grievance politics is so powerful that, you know, that's, that's not going to, I, I think, make a lot of an impact. And so I think Democrats are, you know, here and elsewhere are, are just a, a little, I mean, or maybe more than a little flat-footed in, in how to respond effectively to more of the, the cultural and grievance angle of politics today. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it's a lot harder to respond to complaints than to uh, than to give good ideas and try to, you know, it, it's hard to walk into a room and have to defend yourself before you can even tell them the things that you want to do to help them. You know, it, it, it just creates a, a, it's just a more difficult situation. So now to to move on a little bit. What are your um, thoughts about what's happening in our, in Georgia with our governor's race? Have you had a chance to look at it and see? Uh... Go ahead. Yeah, I, I have. And, you know, it's eerily similar to what's going on here in Wisconsin. And so, I mean, I think as, as swing states, as, as states where the Republican Party is highly divided, there's some real compelling parallels between Georgia and Wisconsin. Obviously, in your gubernatorial race, the key issue is just the 2020 election. I mean, there's really nothing else that separates the two candidates besides that. <laughs> and here in, here in Wisconsin, we have the exact same situation unfolding. I mean, we don't have anyone kind of as high profile as you know, David Perdue in the in the race who's challenging like a, an established incumbent. But I mean, the, the key dividing line in the field is the 2020 election. And in, in particular, we've had a state representative named uh, T- Tim Rathman uh, or Tim Rampton, sorry, who entered the race. And his sole platform pretty much is decertifying the presidential election and trying to, and he has this sort of plot where he can lay the groundwork if he is able to revoke the 10 electoral votes for Biden from Wisconsin, then then somehow that'll lead to Donald Trump being reinstated or something like that. He had a kickoff for governor with uh, Mike Lindell and it's it's turned the race on its head because you've seen the other candidates having to react to the entry of uh, Rampton into the race. Uh, the two major players, uh, sort of the establishment favorite, Rebecca Clayfish, who was the lieutenant governor under Scott Walker, she had previously said that, yeah, Biden, Biden's the legitimate winner. And then she was asked again about that recently and said, well, you know, I don't know who the legitimate winner is. And the other major candidate <laughs> the race, uh, Kevin Nicholson, uh, has said the same thing. So, I mean, uh, you, you've seen that that has become almost like the, the key issue in this campaign. I mean, I, I can't really think of 
policy differences among the candidates in the race outside of the issue of the 2020 election, you know, much like it, it's hard to find daylight between uh, Nathan Deal and David Perdue outside of their attitudes on the 2020 election. So I, I think we're basically seeing, like, the, the broadly speaking, the same thing unfold in the governor's race, both, both in Georgia and in Wisconsin. As much as we'd like it to be Nathan Deal, it's actually Brian Kemp. But that's oh, Brian we Kemp. all make that mistake. <laughs> it's okay. Um, so, I, I mean, to sort of turn this back to what we were talking about earlier, how do, how do the citizens, both rural and urban, are, is there any reaction to this? Like, aren't they worried about broadband and education and inflation and jobs and not so much about the 2020 election? And is there any backlash from voters about any of it? I mean, I, I think you made a really good point. You know, how how do you even kind of communicate with voters when they're not willing to listen to you in, in the first place? And I think that's frankly where a lot of Democrats are at in rural areas right now here in Wisconsin and elsewhere uh, that, you know, can, you know, if they come to rural areas with a message that, hey, we're going to expand broadband, hey, we're going to work, uh, you know, work, work with you on new agriculture prices to, you know, benefit family farms, you know, hey, we're going to try to stem the loss of population here and try to get more businesses here. Um, you know, I think it obviously takes a receptive audience to be able to make those arguments. And I'm not sure that that receptive audience quite exists in, in rural parts of the state. Uh, so I think the Democrats might be able to stop the bleeding, so to speak, with sort of these appeals to the material interests of rural areas. Uh, the Democrats have not yet quite bottomed out here in rural areas, so this might prevent them from bottoming out. But in terms of a growth mm -hmm. strategy, I'm really skeptical because, in you know, you have to sort of upend the cultural and and, and and uh and value oriented politics of the area and you know in that in that case the republicans are just really cleaning the democrats clock uh so i i think you know it, it's a strategy that can <laughs> prevent a really bad situation for democrats from getting even worse to kind of go about these material you know, hey, we're going to help meet your material needs. But I, I don't think it's a strategy that can fundamentally reverse the tide that's going against them. Oh, okay. Well, with that, I'm going to pass it on to Tim. Thank you so much. We are so glad to have you on the show. Thank you. Tim. Uh, good evening, Doctor. Thank you for being with us tonight. And, uh, Ron Johnson's always an interesting fellow to talk about, isn't he? Uh, <laughs> he is. <laughs> and my first question is, 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 seriously, why is Ron Johnson now moving to block a federal judicial appointment 
for a judge that he recommended for the job. Yeah, this is sort of the latest soap opera in Wisconsin politics, and, and there are so many soap operas, it's it's hard to keep track of them. But this is certainly the latest one where Mark Pocan, who is the Democratic representative uh, in the House of Representatives from the Madison area, he has a brother who has been nominated to be a federal judge. And now Ron Johnson is, is trying to block this nomination from going through. It's the first use of a senator trying to block a lower level judicial nominee in the Biden administration. It's not clear how the Democrats are going to react at this point. But it certainly shows how just aggressive Ron Johnson is in his political style. I mean, normally with a, you know, Ron Johnson is someone who sort of defies conventional political science in many ways. For example, in a swing state like Wisconsin, in a 50-50 state, you would normally expect a senator to moderate as they go towards reelection. But Ron Johnson has doubled and tripled down on a lot of these hardball tactics. And what it's done is it has made him a favorite of the Republican base. So he has, he, he has really captured the Republican base and filled the void that has been left by key players exiting the picture, most notably Scott Walker exiting the picture in politics here in Wisconsin. Now, now Ron Johnson is that beloved figure among the Wisconsin Republican base. But it has also made him unpopular. Uh, so Ron Johnson, to my knowledge, is the least popular, according to most polls that I've seen, is, is the least popular statewide elected official in Wisconsin. And that's not surprising, right? I mean, when you look at sort of Ron Johnson's political style and you look at his political style in relationship to the views of the people in the state in relationship to the partisanship of this, uh, you know, he's going it, to, it's going to be plenty expensive, his reelection campaign. It's going to be plenty competitive. And, you know, I, 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 I think he can win for sure because you've got a midterm election with a Democratic president. Uh, but the fact that he really has not moderated his positions, he has not moderated his tactics, it's going to make this a more competitive race than it could have been. And the Democrats certainly see an opportunity to pick up a seat in an election year where they may not have many pickup opportunities at all. Mm -hmm. uh, I've asked others this question, and, and Ben, you're there on the ground. You could perhaps explain this to me better than, than anyone, but – your state seems historically to be a little, shall we say, schizophrenic. How does a state like Wisconsin go from the birthplace of public sector unions to Gene McCarthy? How do you go from Russ Feingold to Ron Johnson? And we're talking about the same group of voters voting, you know, in, in, in both races. How, how do you do that there? 
<laughs> you know, it's a it's a mystery that I'm still trying to solve. But I mean, you you look at even the recent history of elections here in Wisconsin. I mean, Barack Obama won by landslides in Wisconsin uh-huh. in 2008 and 2012. In between those two years, Scott Walker wins election. Uh, then you have Tammy. Then you have Tammy Baldwin, a progressive uh-huh. from Madison, winning a statewide election for Senate, combined with Ron Johnson. And by the way, both of them have been reelected once each. So mm-hmm. it, it is a it is an extremely unusual state. And my best my best response to that is that because the state is so evenly divided and we have extreme candidates by and large, uh, it means that we swing back and forth between extremes rather than picking out a moderate candidate. I mean, and this has been brought up as there's been sort of rumors that the 80-year-old Tommy Thompson, former governor, might enter the race for governor, I don't think he will, but, you know, we get these rumors every time there's a statewide election that Tommy's going to run. So, you know, I, I think mm-hmm. until I think until his time has come on this earth, we'll be hearing rumors that he's going to run for office again in Wisconsin. But but a moderate mm-hmm. like him, I think, would win easily in, in Wisconsin. Uh, but mm-hmm. uh, the fact is we typically don't have moderates. Uh, at least in the recent history of the state, and and so uh, when you have an evenly divided state, you know, you, and you don't have a lot of moderate options, you just swing towards the extremes, and I think that's been the story of Wisconsin politics in recent years. Yeah. Well, speaking of extremes, you you had mentioned the the relitigation of the 2020 election, which I I, I think you're right. Wisconsin's got to be one of the ground zeros for that. Your state assembly has, if I'm not mistaken, the only investigation of the 2020 election that is actually led by a special counsel. What is this person empowered to do? And is this a political stun or is it actually legal? Yeah, so uh, there's been a lot of reporting about how Robin Voss, he's a really key player in Wisconsin politics. Robin Voss is the Speaker of the State Assembly. He's the most powerful Republican in the state legislature. And Robin Voss has been under enormous pressure from his members and from his base to look into the 2020 election because, by and large, the Republicans in this state do believe that the election was stolen from Donald Trump. And that has put Robin Voss in a position of having to try to, well, basically keep his job while, you know, dealing with the views of his uh, political party. So what he's done is, he, as you mentioned, he has named a special counsel, former Wisconsin State Supreme Court Judge Michael Gableman. And it's not clear exactly what this investigation is about, because a lot of it is highly secretive. There's not a lot of transparency in this investigation. There have been some strange twists and turns in this investigation, like Michael Gableman, the the special counsel, saying that he actually wants to put the mayors of uh, Milwaukee, Madison, in jail because they won't oh, uh, they won't testify before him in a in a private setting. Uh, fun fact: uh, his his uh, his uh, uh, his uh, his office that the special counsel's office is actually 
in a strip mall between a marriage uh, marriage counselor and a plastic surgeon. So that's where the <laughs> investigation is being run out of. And I'm not even oh. kidding about that. So so he wants he wants the uh, he wants the mayors of Green Bay and uh, Madison to show up at the strip mall to be questioned in private. They say no. And so uh, now we're in the sort of situation of, you know, all these court battles over these subpoenas that have been issued, all of these court battles over what exactly this special counsel can and cannot do. I, I tell you, the winners in this are the Madison lawyers who are, you know, billing clients hundreds of dollars an hour for to, you know, do battle in the courtroom over this 2020 election oh. investigation. I think, I think they're the main winners in this. Uh, but, but yeah, this has been one wild ride, this special counsel investigation, yeah. and uh, we're not even close to the end of it. Yeah, and with that loneliness, I'm going to send it back to David. David. Yes, the mayor should say, until you can get a shop between the crematorium and the adult bookstore, we're not coming. Um, I don't know where these Republicans find these uh, bizarre locations, but, but they have got a knack lately. Well, Dr. Shigoski, we, we thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, we know people follow you on social media. You may have other places you're publishing. Uh, tell our listeners anywhere where they can um, find your thoughts and musings other than enrolling in your classes at University of Wisconsin Lacrosse. <laughs> sure, follow me on Twitter and uh I encourage everyone to learn about uh the university I teach at, uh uwlax.edu. It's a really cool part of the state, a uh, really beautiful part of the state. Often uh often gets overlooked uh you know, as we've been thinking about, uh but uh uwlax.edu, UW Lacrosse is where I teach. And uh, I'm also on Twitter, so I uh, would love to keep up with people there. All right. Well, maybe y'all have a location in the Los Angeles airport since y'all got y'all's initials down, a satellite location um, to open up. But uh, once again, thanks for coming on. And, of course, with these races being so good in 2020, as we get closer to the primary, after the primary, we know the actual general election matchups. Uh, we're going to have to have you on again, I'm sure. Would be delighted. Thanks, as always, for having me on. Thank you so All much. Right. Thank you, Doctor. Thank you. Yes, that was our uh, Badger State expert, Dr. Anthony Chugoski. Um Love having him on the show, as you can tell, because our interview uh, went long, which we're happy to because there's so much great content to discuss. We're just glad he gave us uh, essentially 40 minutes of his time. So, let me set up next week's show, and that's about all we got time for. Uh, next week, coming on the show, uh, always so glad to have her own, Dr. Rachel Bittenkoffer. She's going to come on the show, and uh, I think she started a new endeavor called Strike Pack. She's going to speak to us about that. She's also going to kind of give us a, a lay of the land, because if anybody remembers, she predicted the 2018 outcome as well as anyone. Had some pretty good tea leaves for 2020. And we're going to see what she feels um, right now looks like, you know, 2022 looks like. But until then, been the Kudzu Vine. Good, Good night, night guys. Good night, everybody. We are the heirs of that first revolution. with a strong and united America.
America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around?